0: Shabbat Shalom. It's a privilege for me to be here at Advent Hope once again. One of the nice things that I like about Advent Hope, whether I am uh, visiting and sitting in the in the pews or um, conversing with people, is that we have a certain amount of permission, if you will, to uh, to be frank. So do I have your permission this morning to speak frankly with you? Yeah? Okay, good. So it's okay if I make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? Good, good. I'm glad. Because I have two questions for you. The first question is how many liars do we have in the group? Think carefully about how you're going to answer. I only saw a few hands. I only saw a few hands. Okay. Uh, Second question. Have you made the serious decision to give your life to Jesus Christ? Charles Dickens says that we, it was the best of times and the worst of times. We're living that today things on the one hand seem so advanced and uh, uh, for some people it's so hopeful because of the science and the technology and and the advances that human beings have been able to make. And at the same time, we've had more confusion and more problems than ever before. The irony of it in health and medicine and uh, like uh, sciences and arts is that this is the best time in Earth's history to be sick. (laughs) We can do so much. But yet, how we decide where we put our emphasis, what we do in response to the call of God, well... We are bombarded. Our adversary, the devil, is on the prowl. And we're his food. He looks at you and me and he's thinking lunch. By God's grace, we will not let him do that. So this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit will uh, be with us. As a matter of fact, let us pray. Loving Heavenly Father, I pray that that promise that you've made, that when two or three are gathered in your name, that you are in our midst, will be true this morning. That you will hide me behind your truth, that you will use my mouth, but more importantly, your Holy Spirit will work in the hearts and minds of everyone, including myself, that we might hear your voice. I pray that your word will not return to you void this morning, that everyone in the hearing of my voice would be so touched by your spirit that we will not be the same again. This, Lord, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. What a time to live in. There's a poet from the early 1900s, Ella Wheeler. She uh, pen, uh, uh, very nice. It's, uh, it's, it's fairly long, but I, I remember one part of that poem, and I'd like, it, I'd like to, to say it for your consideration, all right? Uh, listen to the words and see if you can identify something here that's useful for you. She says, uh, this is only a part of the poem, by the way, she says, one ship sails east and another west with the self-same winds that blow. It's not the gale, but the set of the sail that tells which way you'll go. I have found that poem to be instructive to me because in my, in my journey, uh, my journey, my walk with God, my uh, time as a young man that was called by God and ignored all the calls, as most of us probably have been called and have ignored. But there comes a time when we hear, by God's grace, something happens. The situation in life is such that, that we're, we're now able to listen and we're now able to hear. And not only are we called, we are called out. Out. So Jesus and the Bible writers describe the called-out ones, ecclesia, the church, the called-out ones. As believers, the called-out ones, we celebrate what God has done, what He is doing, and what he has yet promised to do for us, in us, through us, in this world and in the world to come, through his son, Jesus Christ. God is the divine, the eternal lover. He has acted through his firstborn son, Jesus Christ, and has adopted me and has adopted you into his family, his other sons and daughters. He has plans for us for us to have a bright and glorious future with him. He wants that for us. The historical account of this special man, whom when he was alive no one called Jesus because that was the Greek transliteration of his name. But that man, the Messiah or Jesus Christ, His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, his lordship, all of this is real. This is a reality that oftentimes we overlook. But as a believer, as a called out one, I participate and you participate too as called out ones in the events as part of our own lives because our history, our story is wrapped up in his story. Through Christ, God has created a new reality and we have been invited to be subjects in the kingdom of God. Here on this earth, we assemble and we respond to his call. And we, according to the biblical account in Ephesians, are neither Jews nor Greeks. or oh, as the lady was saying, not Jews nor Arabs. We all have equal claim to be part of the family of God. Amen. 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 And as a result, God invites us to come boldly before His throne of grace, to come before Him as children going before a loving Father. The emphasis I would like to place is on loving Father. It's not everyone who has had the blessing of having a loving father. I can say all of us have had a father, right? This is a healthcare institution. <laughs> uh, we don't believe in the stocks and things like that, right? So everybody here has had a father, but everybody may not have had a loving father. We may not understand how love works. We may not understand what love is. Even though we talk about love all the time, this lover, this giver called God and Father has given us a new reality. The reality of his kingdom on earth. And if we participate the way he calls us out to participate, heaven begins here. Because to know him and to know his son is life eternal. It's not about knowing about him alone, but knowing him. And knowing his love and participating in that love, not just as a receiver, but as also a reflector of that love. In this reality, I have four questions that I'd like to be able to deal with this morning. How should we behave towards one another? The Bible answers that question. What does it mean to be part of the called-out ones, the ecclesia? The Bible answers that too. What is or are the distinguishing mark or marks of those who are called out? I don't think you'll be surprised that the Bible has an answer to that as well. And in this world of confusion and this extended battle between good and evil... Can we be sure that we are on the right side? The side that wins in the end. You'd be surprised. You may be surprised. I shouldn't say you will be. You may be surprised at how God answers that question. Before we get any further, I'd like to make a disclaimer. For those of you who may not be aware... Because I'm told that we have visitors in our midst. You may not be aware that God is love. You may not be aware that the language of heaven is love. You may not be aware that the currency of heavenly transactions is love. And along with love are its manifestations. Words like grace and mercy and compassion. These are all wrapped up in the love of God. Justice and truth and righteousness, part of this, this grand scheme of love. But it also involves humility and courage. To stand for the right, though the heavens fall. God is love. I would like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. I had intended to ask people to read, but it probably wouldn't be uh, in the best interest of time to do this. But we might ask ourselves, how how are we supposed to relate to one another if we're in in this love relationship? Well, in Philippians 2, verse 3, we read, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Do you think that that's easy to do? To esteem one another as better than ourselves? We're not born that way because we're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. This is not a natural, normal stance to take. But then again, God doesn't want us to just participate on the plane of natural, he wants us to participate on the plane of the supernatural. But if he asks us or tells us to do something, we can be sure that he will give us everything that is needed to be able to do it. So he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Now, I don't know if your your translation is the same, but it says, let nothing, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That means that when you are in line in the supermarket. And somebody has the audacity to show themselves to be in a hurry. And you're on a tight schedule yourself, what do you do? I like to look at these things practically. Esteem one another as better than ourselves. Verse 4 said says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You're at Potluck. And you, since morning, have been thinking about apple pie. (laughs) And as you get in the line, you see there is a 16-inch apple pie up there. But you are number 30 in the line. (laughs) And there's one piece of apple pie left by the time you're getting close. You can practically taste the apple pie. (laughs) You can tell I've had experience with this. (laughs) You can practically taste the apple pie, and you look over, and it's obvious to you that the three people that are ahead of you also have their eyes on the apple pie. But they're taking quite long with what they're doing here, so it's obvious that you should be able to step around. Does that make sense? <laughs> Will you take the pie? Don't answer that. Ah. There must be a better way. Maybe we can split the pie. All right? We all can get a taste. But how when we make these things practical in everyday life. Okay? we see that God is not calling us to be just normal and natural. He is calling us to enter into a supernatural, a, an extra normal realm called the kingdom of God. And in that realm, the operating concept is love. And how do we love? Turn to Ephesians four Verse thirty two. Now there's there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about. Ephesians four thirty two. Let's see here. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another. Not just be kind to your friends. Be kind to one another. You know, some years ago, it occurred to me that we all, as called out ones, enjoy the concepts. Of justice and mercy. But I also discovered that when I do something wrong, I am very big on mercy. (laughs) And when somebody does something against me, I am very big on justice. (laughs) Now that may not be your experience, but that's the natural man. We want mercy for ourselves and justice for everybody else. But God is calling us here in 432 to be kind to one another, tender hearted, compassionate, forgiving one another. Now, this thing about forgiveness, this is a big deal with God. We might take it lightly, but it's a big deal. With God, Matthew 18, 23 to 35, we're not going to read the whole thing, but you know the story about this king who has two guys, well, he has one guy who, who, uh, who owes him more than he could pay. Somebody at uh, one of the uh, theological seminaries did a calculation. It's like $7.2 billion is what it would be in, in today's uh, uh, currency. 7.2 billion dollars, <laughs> and I don't believe. I mean, how, how Jesus is, is telling this story, and and the guy in the story says, "I will repay it." Now I don't know how he's going to do that. But commentators on this text say it's a sum that he cannot repay in a million years, and the king. Represented by or who represents God says, Forgiven. You don't have to repeat. Forgiven. (laughs) I know if I were that guy, I would leave rejoicing, as I am sure he did. But he gets out in the street and he meets somebody who owes him four months worth of salary. That's what it calculates out to. Four months of salary. Which is a big deal. But it's so small compared to seven billion dollars. And instead of being like Christ moved with Compassion. So many times in the Bible it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. But instead of being like Christ, you know what he says, you know the story. Pay up. And he was ready to put him into debtor's prison. When some of the servants of the king saw and they went back and they tattled, okay? <laughs> they turned him in they said, look at what happened. Listen, when we do things, there are those around who are watching. They're evaluating what we do. They want to see if our walk and our talk are congruent. They want to see if they match. So they go back and they tell the king and the king says, call that guy here. And you know the end of the story. He says, take him out of here. There'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because he did not receive the forgiveness and in turn will be willing to forgive. We all here have been forgiven. Maybe we don't value it. Because in the other parable that Jesus gave about the two debtors, one who, was, who owed a little bit and one who owed a lot, he asked who, who was more thankful, right? The one who was forgiven much. I tell you what, I have been forgiven much. I have to be thankful. And therefore, I ought to reciprocate that thankfulness in the extent of the forgiveness that I extend to others. Examine your own hearts. Let the Holy Spirit come in there and convict you of how much you have been forgiven. It's no simple thing. God is love. And that currency of love means... We will also forgive as He has forgiven. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another just as Christ, as God in Christ, has forgiven you. Jesus says in John 13:34, that he gives us a new commandment. You know what that is? Love one another. But he doesn't just say love one another because people might misinterpret what that love meant. He says love one another as I have loved you. Which means we ought to get to know him enough, well enough, to understand how he loves us because that's what he's calling us to do, to love as he loved, not just love. Love as he loved. One who would leave everything to get nothing so that we who have nothing can get everything. But he goes on to say, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you have been called out by the love that you have one for another. Now, unfortunately, I think we have taken some of the texts in the Bible and placed them just in certain circumstances. How many weddings have I attended where they read First Corinthians 13? It's become the marriage text. So I guess single people don't have to love like that. (laughs) I guess if you get divorced, you're not going to love like that. 1 Corinthians 13 is describing what that love looks like. To be patient. To be kind. To be long-suffering. To not keep a record of wrongs. They say sometimes in a marriage one person when they have a fight gets hysterical and the other one gets historical. (laughs) The long list of what has happened. No. Love is not like that. Ah. Can't you... You know, I'm up here, and I'm I'm talking, and and you're sitting. I don't know what's going through your mind. But can't you just imagine what it would be like if we really loved that way? I mean, what would Loma Linda be like if people in Loma Linda, this is a small town. We're not talking about the whole of California. We're just talking about Loma Linda. What if the people in Loma Linda loved that way? And it's not just an issue of expecting somebody else to love you that way. God is calling us to love that way. He doesn't say just love your friends. What does he say? Your enemies. And those who despitefully use you, pray for them. This is not natural. It's supernatural. That we would even think to do this. But he says, this is, this is how the kingdom of God is. Do you want to be part of that kingdom? In your wildest imagination, can you see it? Do you want it? I have made it available to you. I will give it to you. I have done everything that is needed for you to have a righteous experience, for you to be righteous, doing the right thing, thinking the right thing, being the right kind of person. Ah, Lord, help us. When, when will we enter into his glory? When will we enter into this kind of experience? Truly. Not just talk about it, but live it. Isn't today a good day to do that? In the King James Version, they use the word behold. Uh, I like, when I read things in the King James, I like to try to understand what the author's meant when they used those words. So I have no problem going back and looking at the Greek and the Hebrew and the whatever, and try to, try to understand. I, I'm not a scholar in those things, I, but you know, we have the internet, <laughs> we can put it to good use. I have the Strong's Concordance, I have the Young's Concordance. I can look up these things and try to understand. Behold, behold. Behold what manner of love. Behold. You know what it means? It means look. See. Observe. Heads up. Look out. Check this out in the modern vernacular. Check it out. It also means gaze upon this. It means to deeply ponder, behold. Behold, God offers us today a new reality, a different experience, one that is based on love, pure love. And we may sometimes spend a whole Sabbath day going through the paces And by the time the evening comes, we have forgotten what was said, the good thoughts that we may have had, and it's back to business as usual. I am not talking about you. I'm talking about me and about us. This is the common experience of human beings. Praise God. He knows that we're dust. He knows that the spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak. He understands that. And because of his mercy and his grace and his great love, he offers us another chance and another and another. Oh, what a God we serve. He tells us how to deal with each other when things are going well. He also tells us how to deal with each other when things aren't going so well. When someone sins against me, he tells me in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, what I should do. Don't make a big scandal out of this. Go to my brother quietly and settle it there. And if not, get two or three like-minded people. This is a brother I am talking about, a brother or a sister. And among ourselves, we should be able to settle it quietly. But if not, he says, go to to the mass of the called out ones. Go to the church and see if you can settle it there. And if at the end of it, he does not want to settle it, then he does not want to participate in this love thing. You will have to shun him. Now that's serious. But we don't practice that here. As a matter of fact, we may use the text that say, judge not that you be not judged. And we'll say, (laughs) well, but if we want to settle accounts and really love. First, if we're offended, we will forgive. And then, to help our brother, even though forgiving, forgiven, we need to help our brother or sister to not do that again with somebody else. You see, it's not about just trying to get revenge or any such thing. On the contrary, it's about saving the relationship and the relationships within the family. This is what it's about. The whole of Matthew 18, if I can summarize, it shows the greatness of service. In Matthew 18, we find out that we are saved to serve. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about the children. He says, Don't pervert the children. Serious stuff. And when we think of what's going on in society, don't pervert the children. He says, Sin is a serious business, it's more serious than a heart attack. Heart attacks, we have clockbusters and ICU. Sin has only one remedy. The blood of Jesus Christ. Very costly. God is in the rescue business, is what we find in Matthew 18. That we should deal with offenses privately and not make a big deal unless it becomes a big deal. We should be careful He also goes on to talk about the sacredness of marriage and not getting involved in between the relationship of people who are married to each other. Problems in marriage and infidelity are rampant in today's society. He also talks about what Should be our relationship with those who are not of the fold, who are not called out. They are children, all right, but they just don't know it yet. How should we treat them? Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 7 to 11. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. We shouldn't be fighting against one another and taking each other to court. Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Sobering thoughts in verse 11, and such were some of you. We remember, we should remember from where we came. And by the grace of God, we're no longer there. Verse 9, no, verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Amen. Matthew 5:38 says to go the second mile. Matthew 5:43 says love your enemies. Matthew 5 says to love that we are the salt of the earth. Let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and think that we are the greatest things on earth. Is that what your Bible says? No, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, we are the fragrance of God to those that are dying and those who are being saved. The fragrance of God. We're told that we should let our speech be always with grace, sprinkled with salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer every person. And then we come to the hard stuff. We're going to end looking at 1 John. We'll go to 1 John 4, verse 20. Whenever I begin to feel that I have arrived, I read the book First 1 John. 1 John 4, verse 20. Actually, let's, uh, yeah, let's just do that. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, what does your Bible say there? How many liars do we have in this room? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God, what does your Bible say? Must love his brother also. Is that clear? (laughs) It really is. It's very clear. In Colossians 3.11, it says there's no Greek, no Jew, no bond, no free, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all that matters. He lives in all who have accepted him. No racial divide. No gender divide. No black, white, Hispanic, Native American uh, demography. Not among the called out ones. Not among the called out ones. So God gives us a test. We all know. John 3.16. We all know it. We know it by heart. We've learned it ever since we were kids, those of us who were brought up in the church. For God, go ahead, let me hear. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We love that text. It's the motto of the Christian. For God so loved the world. But then we go to 1 John 3.16. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 3.16. And we find out here, this is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But the Bible does not stop mid-text there. It goes on to say, and so we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And we do this every day. And we go to church on Sabbath being pious. I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about we, us. We do it. And we assume that this is, this is okay, because everybody else is doing it too. But God does not call us to be just normal and natural. He calls us to be abnormal and to enter the realm of the supernatural. Oh, yes. If we go back up a little bit to 1 John 3, verse 14. Actually, let's start with 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. And verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. What is that, what is that thing that, that tells us that we have passed from death to life? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Do you want to know if you have passed from death to life? This is how we know. Look around you. Do you love the way Jesus loves? Do I love the way Jesus loves? Yes, yes, yes. There are some people, I'll tell you, they are unlovable. <laughs> and God says, love them anyway. There are some people who get on your last nerve. And God says, love them anyway. There are some people who do not respond to love The more you try to be friendly with them and the more you try to to be gracious to them, the harder they get. You know what the Bible says? Love them anyway. The kingdom of God is like this. We're not only called to be Christians. We're called out from the world to be special people, that when others see the way we love, the way Jesus loved, ah, they will know that we are his disciples. Health ministry, personal ministries, family ministries, children's ministries, all based on one thing, love. Every church activity should be based on one thing, love. The reason why these young men and women were scurrying around this morning to make sure everything was right and in order based on one thing The reason why when you're told you can't have it in this building, you have to move to this other building, and then they tell you, no, not that building, another building, and you do it anyway, you know what it's based on? Love. And don't get upset with people when they don't treat you the way you think you deserve. You deserve death. Anything is better than that, right? I tell you. Our thoughts make a difference. One ship sails east and the other west with the self same winds that blow. It's not the gales but the set of the sails that tells which way you'll go. I pray that the Holy Spirit will move you to a deeper knowledge of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse,